as I mentioned, it's about 20 years ago that I began working with students at Belmont. Um, many of them were from a Christian background, but I found myself having this regular conversation with these students. We would get together for coffee, and they would talk to me about how, since they'd come to college, they were struggling with doubts, fears. Often they weren't feeling close to God anymore. And what was even more distressing to me was that they felt that all of those things meant that probably they weren't really Christians. As I began to talk with them, I'd say, well, have you read the Psalms? Because the Psalms seem to indicate that that kind of experience is pretty typical for people of faith. Well, of course, they hadn't read the Psalms. Um, They weren't shaped by the Psalms. But as I began to probe more deeply, I realized not only were they not being shaped by the Psalms or by the Bible when it came to understanding spirituality, they were being shaped and molded by the songs they were singing, which honestly, in many cases, were lying to them about what the normal Christian life felt like. Now, I'm all for expressing our feelings to God in worship. The Psalms are full of that sort of thing. But a constant diet of only that, if all we ever get to do in worship is tell God how we feel, and all we ever say to him is, I love you, I don't want anything else besides you, at some point, when you look inside and you realize there's a disconnect between honestly where my heart is and what I'm saying, and you look around and everybody else has their eyes closed and seems to be feeling what you're not feeling, it's a profoundly alienating experience. And many of my students that had grown up in Christian families, that's what they were feeling. And so what I realized was what was normal had been misnamed for them. If you misname normal, you really mess people up. Because not only are they struggling to sort of fit their experience into what seems to be normal, but they really are profoundly alone in that. They feel like they're the only ones and there's no context or no safe place for them to say, you know, I'm just not feeling like that today. So I began to look for some other songs to sing. Honest songs. This hymn by Ann Steele, Dear Refuge in My Weary Soul, I want to draw your attention to this. I want to take you through this text. Now I remember when I first came upon this, just feeling like, gosh, we just, we just don't have songs like this anymore. I, I thought, you can say this in church? Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul? Like you can admit that you're weary? Now, of course, she starts out, Anne Steele does this regularly in her hymns. She'll begin with a creative name for God and a direct address to God. Some people say that hymns are just didactic. They just talk about God. But modern songs uh, talk directly to God. That's not true. It's not fair to actually modern songs or hymns. This is a prayer. It's a direct address to God, as most of her hymns are. And she regularly will start with a confession of the truth, much like Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel. Dear refuge of my weary soul. On thee when sorrows rise, on thee when waves of trouble roll, my fainting hope relies. That's a good confession of the truth. Thoroughly orthodox, moving, creative, all these things. And she goes on, to thee I tell each rising grief, for thou alone canst heal. Thy word can bring a sweet relief for every pain I feel. Now, if this was a modern song, we might just sing that over and over and over again. But because Anne, through her hymns, takes us on a journey of the way life really tends to work, she goes on. Look at verse 2. But, oh, now the exclamation point is hers. She published her hymns herself. She published them under a pen name, Theodosia. It was a little bold for a Baptist woman in the 1700s to put 
words in the mouth of worshipers, but she did it under a pen name, and her hymns were quickly adopted, right? Well, she herself put in the punctuation, and her punctuation, there's often exclamation points. I love that. She's vigorous in her style, right? These things matter and are worth feeling. But, oh, when gloomy doubts prevail, that word prevail is a strong word, isn't it? She's not saying, oh, sometimes I'm troubled by doubts, but I quickly am able to to put them aside and trust in Jesus. No, when gloomy doubts prevail, do you know what it's like for my students to to see that? To, To see that other people have felt like this, that this little Baptist lady that lived 300 years ago in a place far away from them felt the same thing that they felt? The kingdom of God all of a sudden got a whole lot bigger. It wasn't just an expression of their parents' faith. Other people have felt like this for centuries. Gloomy doubts prevail. And she goes on, I fear to call thee mine. The springs of comfort seem to fail, and all my hopes decline. Brutally honest, and oh so rare in the modern songs that we've been singing. She goes on, yet gracious God, where shall I flee? Thou art my only trust, and still my soul would cleave to thee, though prostrate in the dust. I love that she's teaching us how to gospel argue, as the Psalms do, right? Why are you downcast, my soul? Right? Wrestling. Gloomy doubts prevail. But God, where else can I go? It's kind of like, you know, after, you know, Jesus offends all these people and they leave and he turns around to the disciples and says, do you want to leave too? And Peter says, where else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. But you get the sense that Peter's like, yeah, we kind of do. But we sort of feel stuck. We sort of feel torn. Have you ever felt like that? Do the people in your churches know that Christians regularly feel like that? They don't, because nobody admits that. Nobody says that, but she says that. She goes on, and she sort of, sort of girds herself with arguments from God's character and his promises. She goes on, verse 3, Hast thou not bid me seek thy face, and shall I seek in vain? And can the ear of sovereign grace be deaf when I complain? No. Still, the ear of sovereign grace attends the mourner's prayer. Oh, may I ever find excess to breathe my sorrows there. I love that word, breathe. Sometimes that's all you can do is breathe your sorrows. You can't even put them into words. And doesn't Paul talk about that in Romans 8? Right? About this groaning. She goes on, thy mercy seat is open still. Here, let my soul retreat. With humble hope, attend thy will. And wait beneath thy feet. Now you can see, like, musically when I set this, there's kind of a tentative thing and then sort of a repeating. So even in the music, it's a tentative at first, and then you sing it again and it's strengthened. Even to hear yourself confess it out loud sometimes is helpful, isn't it? Yes, this is really what I believe. I love the way she starts out with this good confession. She honestly tells you how she struggled, how gloomy doubts prevailed, but then she comes back. But when she comes back to the place of faith, it's not triumphalistic. It's humble, it's sober, it's real. And there is something about trying on her story as you sing this hymn that helps you. It helps you kind of work through things. Dan Allender, Christian counselor, said one time that if we sang more of the Psalms, we'd have a whole lot less need of Christian counseling. Now, I'm not denigrating Christian counseling at all, but I do think that's right. I do think that there's a disconnect sometimes between biblical spirituality the way it's talked about in the Psalms, and what uh, most of our people's expectations are about what it means to be a Christian and feel like 
a Christian. So we love these honest songs. The other thing that I was really searching for in the early days of this movement were songs that focused more on the gospel. Now, at least anecdotally, I felt like there just weren't a lot of songs that talked about Christ and him crucified. Now, I I know now that that's actually true uh, when we talk about modern songs. I had an opportunity a few years ago to go spend a week with Bert Pullman, who's passed on now. But Bert was the uh, hymnology professor at Calvin. And he had a summer seminar where they gathered about 20 theologians, New Testament professor was part of that, some worship leader, practitioners, um, worship theologians, different folks. And what we did is we took the, the corpus of the top 250 modern worship songs as recorded by CCLI, because the fact that churches have to report the songs that they use means that there are statistics about which songs get used the most. So you can look at the top 25 songs for the last 25 years. Then we took the top 250 hymns that appear most often in various hymnals, uh, at least in North America. And we analyzed these two groups of songs for doctrinal content. And particularly with the question we were asking was, do these songs, these modern songs, contribute to the rise of what was called moral therapeutic deism? Maybe you're aware of Christian Smith um, and his contention that that's the functional religion of most young people. God wants us to be happy and healthy. And he's generally far away until we invoke him through our singing. That's the functional religion of most young people. I'm telling you that that's true. I work with students. I have been for 20 years, and that's true. Um, But where does it come from? And, you know, scholars are always a little hesitant to, to sort of draw direct connections. But at least what we said is the modern songs don't give us much Uh, theological backbone to resist that. Maybe it's too far to say they contribute to it, but I'll just tell you this. Of those top 25 uh, songs of the last 25 years, a group of about 250 songs, the word sin is never used as a verb. Not once. There are a few references to sin as a noun, my sin. Lord, I bring you my sin. But there's never, Lord, I've sinned against you. Does that lead to moral therapeutic deism? I don't know, but it certainly does not represent well the Christian tradition and what we understand about sin and about grace. Trinitarian content, almost completely non-existent. One reference to the work of the Spirit, it's in Shine Jesus' sign, and it's this, blaze, Spirit, blaze. It's not much, but it's something, right? And so you begin to look at some of these songs and you realize if the gospel, if the cross And Paul said to the Corinthians, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. It seems to be the focus of his message and his ministry. And yet, when you look at these modern songs, if the cross was mentioned, it was just mentioned or alluded to. It was never unpacked. Not like a a hymn like, let us love and sing and wonder, right? Let us wonder, love and mercy, join and point to mercy's, sorry, love and justice, Join and point to mercy's store when, through grace in Christ, our trust is justice smiles and asks no more. Like my perfectionistic students needed to know that God didn't just die on the cross to give them a fresh start and a fresh opportunity to try to impress him. They needed to know that his righteousness was given to him. That they were beautiful in his sight because Jesus had lived and died in their place. And there were no songs that were helping them understand that. And so what I was trying to preach to them about the gospel was being undermined by the songs they were singing. Because the songs were saying, the reason God loves you is because you really, really, really love him and really, really, really want to worship him and it's all you want to do. And what happens when they begin to realize that's not all I want to do? 
If that's the basis for justification, likes. There's a guy named William Romaine. He's an uh, 18th century evangelical. He's a friend of John Newton's, though they disagreed about whether you should sing hymns or only psalms. But uh, in one of his letters, he's talking to a person who's very discouraged about their, uh, their faith. And G- Romaine says to them, the problem is you've made a Jesus out of your faith. You're looking to your faith rather than looking to your Savior. And when you see weakness in your faith, you think you have a weak Savior. And I thought, man, that's exactly what we're doing. And all these songs are encouraging my students to look at their faith all the time. And it's a big problem. So we needed songs that were explicit about the gospel. In other words, who God is and what he's done. Because I'm convinced that the best way to understand the justice of God, the mercy of God, the patience of God, is to look at Christ and him crucified. And that the songs rarely talked about it. I want to talk about this last hymn that we're going to sing, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. You might know a traditional tune for this one. I don't know if you know the story about this hymn, but it, it, it's a great story. You know, um, before I tell that story, I want to say this last thing. Um, a few years ago, I was on a panel in Nashville um, there was like a, a songwriting, worship songwriting conference. And somehow I got asked to be on this panel. And people were being asked, when you hear worship songs and you're having to decide whether or not you want to record them or publish them or sing them in your church, what is the criteria that you use? And so people went down the line. They talked about things like, well, you know, it needs to be singable, it needs to be catchy, it needs to, you know, have some good words, good poetry, all these sorts of things. And they finally got to me, and I stole a line from John Whitfleet. Uh, who directs the Calvin Institute of Worship, I said, honestly, when I'm thinking about the songs that my students are going to sing, I want songs that are going to prepare my students for their encounter with death. And it's like silence. You could just hear a pin drop. I know I was being a little snarky, but it's a real important thing. Like what kinds of songs are forming our people and what are we forming them for? I want songs that are forming and preparing my people for their encounter with death. John Wesley was asked once, why the Methodist revival spread so fastly. His answer, our people die well. And in a day when people died with their friends and family around them, that mattered, right? Isn't it fascinating? The kinds of songs that we tend to sing at funerals. Now, I've been to a few funerals where we sang modern songs, but not many. Why is it people want to turn to these kinds of songs in those kinds of moments? And how... Sad if we don't know any of those kinds of songs in those moments. Well, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. George Matheson wrote this. He actually was a seminary student um, engaged to a woman and began to lose his sight. He really had planned to go more into academia and published a a work. um, I forget exactly what it was on, but the critics attacked it because he hadn't done the kind of research he needed to do. And that was directly attributed to him losing his sight. His fiancée left him when he lost his sight, said she didn't want to be married to a blind man. And so eventually he became a pastor, actually a pretty popular pastor. He's called the Blind Bard of Edinburgh and pastor a church of around 2,000 people. But he, um, he had his sister who lived with him and helped kind of care for the household and whatnot. Well, the night that he wrote this hymn, he says that his sister was going to be married And all of the family had left to go to the wedding. He'd stayed behind and wrestled with God. Now, it's somewhat speculative, but I don't think it takes great imagination to imagine the kinds of things he might have wrestled with. Things like, who will care for me now? 
thinking about his own marriage that never came to be. Well, he said this hymn came to him almost like it was dictated in a matter of about 15 minutes. He wrote over 200 other hymns, but he said he never had an experience like this one. He actually originally wrote, um, look at verse 3. I want to draw your attention to verse 3, where it says, O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain. He actually originally wrote, I climb the rainbow through the rain. And feel the promise is not vain. That morn shall tearless be. Now listen. That story, the rainbow. You know in the Hebrew that it doesn't say rainbow. It says bow. And it's the Hebrew word for a battle bow. And what is the sign that God gives his people that he'll not destroy the world by flood again? It's a battle bow cocked and aimed at God himself. There's a fascinating place in Hosea where he refers to, God refers to putting down his battle bow and marrying himself to his people. What an interesting imagery of covenant love. So we look on this side of the cross not just to a promise made, the covenant promise made of a cocked battle bow aimed at God himself, but what is the cross? Well, we know, Paul says, that all the promises of God are yea and amen in Christ. And what the cross is, is the battle bow loosed, not because Christ deserved it, but because his covenant people deserved it. Therefore, when trials come, if you are in Christ, you know that the battle bow was loosed on Jesus in your place. Puritans used to say, if you don't understand justification by faith, then every trial is a double trial. Because not only is it a trial, but it raises the question for you, does God still love me? How vital it is to understand the work of God, the work of Christ, the character of God in times of trials. And how important it is that we sing songs that people can know and have sort of rooted in their hearts who God is and what he's done. Because they will need it. They will need it. You will need it. You'll need it before you're done with seminary. I guarantee it. Let's sing this hymn.